This week I'm I'm not sure I'm compass mentis, but I'm here. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 56 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello, hello. Lucas Rubelke. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. I have a real quick announcement. Angular Remote Conf. Uh, when this comes out, you've got a few days to get your early bird tickets for $100. And then if you miss the deadline, then it's going to go up to $200. So go ahead and get it now. And Lucas is actually going to be speaking at the conference, or at least he's agreed Yay! to. <laughs> I have agreed. Yes. Uh, we also have two special guests this week. We have Jeff Welpley. Hello. And Patrick Stapleton. Hey, guys. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, my name is Jeff Welpley. I'm the chief architect at Get Human. And uh, for the past year or so, I've been uh, heavily involved with uh, trying to get server rendering working both in Angular 1 and now uh, working with Patrick in Angular 2, trying to get uh, server rendering working. Yeah, and I'm Patrick Stapleton, also known as Patrick JS. I'm currently um, working with my friend Scott Moss on Angular class also doing open source, and working with Jeff and Tobias and the Angular team to get universal JavaScript up and running with server rendering. So, Patrick, I have to just ask, is your middle initial J? Because that would just be cool. Yeah. Everyone always assumes that I just think it's JavaScript, but it's actually my initials. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm thinking to have my name legally changed to JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) First name Java, last name Script. So uh, I I hear all kinds of things about isomorphic JavaScript and universal JavaScript and JavaScript that works on the front end and the back end. And it sounds like you're pulling this front end stuff into the back end. Do you want to kind of talk about some of the advantages you see to doing this server rendering and and how it simplifies our lives? There are a number of different reasons that matter to individual niches, but the main reason that affects everybody is performance. 
It's specifically the initial rendering performance of your application. When I started off getting into this, you know, a year and a half ago or something like that, it was for a different reason. It was SEO, which is one of the kind of niche reasons that if you have an externally facing site and you want, um, you know, really strong SEO, you sort of need to have that server rendered view in addition to your client rendered app. But as I sort of got into it more, I realized that actually the biggest benefit and the one that benefits the most people is the performance gains because with client side web apps, what you have is no matter how quickly your framework is, uh, how, how fast it is once it loads, that initial loading time is always fairly slow, relatively speaking, usually on the order of magnitude of, you know, four to six seconds, sometimes more for larger applications. And even though a lot of people kind of discount that, but that actually does have a very big impact on user experience, you know, especially for externally facing sites, but even for internal sites. So a lot of the work that we do with server rendering helps to alleviate that because it allows you to use the same code, the, you know, the same app that you're creating client side app in Angular, but instead of just waiting until the client bootstraps and loads after that kind of six seconds, you're able to run your same code on the server, generate that view. And then with the initial server response, which is usually on something like, you know, a hundred, couple hundred milliseconds, you'll get a fully rendered view that the user can see. And it appears almost instantly, you know, in their perception, while the client side app is kind of loading in the background. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, the claim does. Yeah. So let's put some pressure on that. I just in now, as you were talking, I loaded Gmail, which I assume is not isomorphic. Right. It is not. Into my browser. And, uh, you know, wall clock time, two seconds. I'm about to try it on my phone, but uh, that's not really the, the point. The point I'm making is that if it's an app, I've loaded a lot of desktop apps. I mean, almost any editor I load, except for the really fast ones like Sublime. I'm waiting more than two seconds. So my desktop experience of an app that I want to run, that I know I'm going to use for work, that I know I'm going to live in, if I'm under 10 seconds, I'm throwing a party. I'm so used to having that as my experience. Now, what I hope is that once it has loaded, that it's brisk as all get out. But I'm kind of used to, at least for my business or utility apps, that I'm going to have that cost. Now, that's I know, and you will tell me, about all the stats that show that, you know, if I'm shopping at Amazon, how many things can be lost, how much business is lost. If I'm going to a shopping site and it takes a while to get started. Uh, So this performance question is really tuned to our expectations, don't you think? Well, Ward, if you're telling me that you are okay with waiting 10 seconds for an app to load, like there's like no chance I'm going to convince you that you're, you want to use server rendering. Uh, it, well, it you depends know. on the app, right? It really, really depends <laughs> sure. on the app. Like, like, in other words, what I was driving at is a – because this is where I think that, that the skepticism that you may be facing is really conditional upon the nature of the app and, and you know what I'm doing. And so when we make broad statements about whether I would or would not wait for 10 seconds, I know for a fact that you wait for 10 seconds for all kinds of things, right? And you may not like it, but you may just do it anyway because you're going to live with that. It's part of the business and yada, yada. And it's just not the, you know, you just hope the darn thing works. Whereas there are others where other kinds of applications where you say, hey, if this thing doesn't perform, I'm moving on. And we as consumers are, and I don't mean like 
consumers out in the world, but I mean like the consumers of this kind of technology. We have different expectations, different demands for different kinds of apps depending on how we're using them, don't you think? So I'm completely different on this. I mean, for me, I have so many things going on that, you know, one, two, three, four, I'm going to go load another page while I wait for it to come back. And then I forget to come back. Which kind of things are you? Because I, I, you know, just I go about to, everything, honestly. Really? So yeah, you, you know, you go to. I mean, this is fascinating to me because I'm so used to waiting that for just about anything, including a range of Google products, Microsoft products, just about anything. That yes, I my, my I've got three monitors up and I'm moving around. And if it's casual, not a chance. Yeah. Not a chance if it's a casual interaction, but if it's going to be a long-running interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if it's critical, then I'll wait, but yeah. GitHub, I mean, come on. You know, GitHub doesn't come up in a flash. So you brought up a really good point. There's actually two things going on here. There's the, the casual like application, and then there's the actual application that you have a long life cycle. And this is why Gmail, for example, as you said, it like, takes a few seconds, but then after that, um, you can even refresh and everything, and everything is extremely consistent. And that's because it's it's loading everything in memory. And uh, we know this experience with native uh, applications, mobile apps, but there's actually a, a huge difference between a web application experience and something like the web. With the web app, you actually need to download it, you need to install it, then you need to wait, you know, a few seconds, loading bar, then your application's there, right? But with the web, it's more based on discovery, like. Again, like what you were saying with like casual interactions with things. A good example of that is Google Docs. Um, you probably have Google Docs open right now, mm-hmm. and that's implementing uh, something that's very similar, and that's to what we try to do today, and that's like progressive loading. Essentially, well, that's probably not a good term, but essentially it's just loading different bits, parts uh, initially, and then loading everything else around it asynchronously. And Twitter does this uh, as well, but you don't really notice that because you take it for granted. And the web is really about uh, discovery, and we're trying to, and the industry is trying to move that kind of everything that's good about the web into this native space, and trying to have these apps interact with each other. So more to your point about load times, and it's true. Like eventually, what's going to happen is that we would all want applications in our on our phones and everything, but we just don't have that constraint. We don't have, you know, we have access to all the internet in the world but we don't have a limited storage. And that's where the web solves that, and that is um, loading everything just in time. So why can't you have the hybrid approach of having the initial load time extremely fast and still maintain the persistence of that? And that's where something like Service Worker plays in. So it's, it's really just a progression of how application development happens. For example, if you booted your, your computer, wouldn't it be nice if you just press the power button, and then everything's kind of there. That's essentially what we're reaching. We're trying to make web development influence everything else by bringing this concept to other ways of uh, developing applications. I'll add one more thing to to what he's saying, which is that, yeah, sure, for certain uh, applications where the user doesn't know the app or, or it's kind of this discovery thing that they're just entering for the first time, there's a huge benefit there, and that's where kind of the primary use case, I guess. But... I think it would be, you'd be hard to argue in any use case that like an app that loads fast is not fundamentally better than an app that loads slowly. It's, I think the thing you're touching on though is 
a sort of unspoken thing is that the reason why you're okay with the apps that load slowly is because there's so much effort that's needed just for that load time, like uh, making it faster. And it's not really worth it because you don't get that much benefit for certain use cases, like the ones that you're talking about where like Gmail that you are expected, your expectations are kind of already set. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't be better. It, it would be better. Oh, like if you're, uh, if you, uh, let, let me just say uh, you got it exactly right there, Jeff. I love instantaneous. I wish when I opened my computer it was instant on like it says it's going to be, never is. That would be fabulous. So you're absolutely right. It's the cost trade-off of what it takes to make something instantaneous and also what I might potentially give up by making it instantaneous, what other features I might give up because I'm depending on server-side rendering. And I hope we'll get into that. The other thing that you brought up, Patrick, which is perhaps a conflation of two things, is one is incremental loading and the other is isomorphic. I can do incremental loading thus giving a, you know, a pretty quick initial experience by not downloading everything and then sneak in behind and backfill. And I don't need isomorphic for that. Is that and I guess we haven't defined isomorphic yet, so we should circle back to that. But I, I, I just want to put that out on the table because um, it's an economics. I agree it's an economics issue as much as it's a technical issue. Do I invest in this? What do I gain? What do I lose for the cost? And we'll get into what I might lose. And um, for the sake of perf, you know, if perf's free, I'll take it. If perf is not free, then I want to know what I have to pay. And now I have, I'll step off my soapbox and let guys <laughs> get on. I actually, but, I, I, I want to challenge another premise on this because, yeah, I mean, you're talking about performance as far as server side rendering goes. You know, it's faster or it takes less time or less resources. But when I talk to most people about single page apps, what they want is they they're saying, "Look, I'm offloading all this work." To the client, and you know, it seems like with server side rendering, you have to do that work anyway. <laughs> I know there. I, I'm asking, like, yeah, we've we've kind of hit a whole bunch of different topics, but I guess what I'm saying is, is it really that much faster to do server side rendering? That is such an interesting point, Charles. And so I I hope we get a a chance to answer that question also about when you're really getting an advantage and when you're not. So we got we got you guys all teed up with all kinds of yeah. Of, of aggressive questions. Let's see how you do. Yeah, so the thing about universal JavaScript, and you brought up a, I'll just, I'll just touch the first point, and that is, um, say that you don't have uh, universal. So again, I guess we should uh, define universal and isomorphic. So the correct term for this is universal JavaScript. That is JavaScript that runs on the client and server. People called it isomorphic before, but that's uh, the correct term is universal. So we're trying to push that. And with what lazy that, what, sorry, what I don't I never loved isomorphic, but what makes universal better? Uh, because you know Microsoft has their universal too, and it's like, oh god, who's not universal? I want to be galactic. <laughs> you could, you universal is more universal. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah, it's more universal. It, to be honest, there's no good reason. It's just yeah. a name is a name, and I think this is just one that people seem to like more. So why not? Okay. All right. Yeah. So um, let me get back to the point. So you, you said that why can't I just structure my app to lazy load um, rather than having everything run in both environments? Now, the problem here that we're really solving is an environment problem, and that is having your application run in, in multiple environments, right? And why can't you configure your application on the server or on the static, statically configure it and say, I want these components over here 
to load synchronously, and I want everything else over here to load asynchronously. When I hit this portion of the page, this portion of the page, this portion of the page. Now, we do this manually in Angular and uh, Angular 1. We do the exact same technique for React, and that is uh, injecting these like promises everywhere, and everything's kind of really tightly coupled to the framework. But wouldn't it be nice to have a way to declaratively say, I want these things to be asynchronous for this, 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 and declaratively configure how you want your application to load. And without changing anything of your application, your application, and just have that there. Now, the only way to actually reach that goal is to have full control over these environments. Now, the benefit of universal JavaScript is that we can take advantage of a lot of control on the server, and we could, because we don't have a lot of the, the browser constraints, like amount of scripts, uh, load times, Etc. Because on the server you just boot it up, and then when it's done, it starts serving. People. And you can leverage caching. Yeah, and you can leverage a lot of caching. Um, that's essentially where we're trying to get at: is that we're providing uh, a better experience. So maybe this is a little bit of. Uh, I'm going to stop you guys because I'm still yeah. a little bit lost. <laughs> yeah. So you know, maybe I can try and restate what you're saying, and then you can tell me what I'm missing. So. First of all, you're, what you're trying to tell me is that I have more control on the server side than on the client side and uh, fewer constraints because I'm not working in the browser. And so that makes it better somehow than running it in the browser. Yeah, yeah I lost that um, one too because I could put all of this stuff on a CDN, right? I, I don't lose any caching there. All of my, the only thing I'm not getting is the initial data that might flood into the. Well, let, let me frame, frame things in kind of the near term and the long term. So what Patrick is it was sort of starting to get into was sort of the long term where in an ideal world, it would be great if you can pick and choose which pieces, you know, are server loaded where you want to leverage caching on the server versus lazy loaded on the client. And basically on a case by case basis for your particular whatever your app is doing, you can do the best of both worlds and have it kind of optimally, you know, load um, because it's great to have like all those options available. Now, what I'd say for the short term, though, is this is where actually two of the things that Ward brought up kind of come into effect, both cost and, you know, speaking about lazy loading. So I agree that actually the concept of lazy loading is great, that having the client just download what is specifically needed for that one request and then everything else downloads in the background, right? And when you do that, the initial load is actually really fast. But the problem is that it is extremely difficult to do that in like from a framework perspective to have, there is no framework out there where you can just um, not uh, just write your code and allow the framework to handle all of the lazy loading for you. No uh, because it, it, it's, it's so particular to what you are doing. Now you can set up your own custom solution to do that, but the framework's not going to be able to do that for you today. Absolutely. The way in which you get the, yeah, you know, how to decide how to sort of like sneakily decide what should be loaded while they're looking at this other thing because you're anticipating they're going there, what should be in each sort of container that represents what you're doing asynchronous download. All that stuff is like wacky hard. And if somebody had a great solution for that, we'd like it, I think. Here's where the cost comes in, that the value proposition and the big one for the short term with server rendering is specifically with, you know, two solution because we're going to make cost practically nothing. 
that you know, I've, I implemented my own server rendering for Angular 1 that I've, I've actually spoken on in a previous show about, and the cost is still pretty high. Like, I, I, it's valuable because I need it for SEO reasons, that type of thing, but I wouldn't recommend it to anyone else, to be quite honest, because the cost was high. But with what we're trying to build in Angular 2, the cost is going to be extremely low so that you almost get it for free. And that's where it is valuable, where you, it, you have something that is better, fundamentally, and if you're going to get it for free, why not? Yeah, free is always good, or at least it seems good. I'll hold off my question about, you know, offline scenarios until later. So you're saying that it's going to be, that there's going to be a way to, without my having to do too much, sort of just a little declaration here and there, I'm going to be able to have something figure out what I need, what, what needs to be loaded when? Yeah, so the, the benefit of Angular 2 is that you're able to statically analyze the dynamic nature of JavaScript because it's using uh, TypeScript. And because uh, the way it's structured, it forces some constraints on the, the application in order for you to um, statically declare its dependencies. And we see this happening with uh, React Relay, where they're doing that, and the industry is kind of like realizing that that's a good idea now. But the benefit there is that we could take advantage of that on the server. And uh, like I was suggesting, that we could actually determine what is needed and how to configure, reconfigure your application um, so it runs for that environment, and in our case, the browser. So is that like by looking at my imports and exports and, and my injectables and things like that? Yeah, so essentially the benefit of ES6 uh, module sy- syntax is that you're able to, it supports a static analysis, so you yeah. can do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, you could, you, so you could figure out what my dependency trees are statically, Yep, is what you're getting at, and then maybe draw some fences around things and say, "All right, we'll give him this at the front end, and then come back later and grab the other stuff." Yeah, that's the ultimate goal that a few people are trying to reach, and the way they're restructuring it will allow us to do that in the future. But yeah, all of that's completely possible. And so, like today, right this second, you know, I, just to be honest and open here like we have everything out on angular uh, github slash angular slash universal but if you tried to use the code right now i I wouldn't say that it's for free right this second because we're not done yet but when we get to the point that everybody will be using it the specific cost will be number one ingest like a very simple uh, guideline that you do need on your um when you're developing in angular 2 which is to use the Angular 2 API for basically your interactions with the DOM. If you explicitly reference like the window object or whatever, you know, we can't, uh, it's harder to mock that out. But if you use the API that's built into Angular 2 for like, you know, doing selecting elements from the DOM or making changes or whatever else, then that's going to be built into the framework to change that uh, to work on the server side, just like, again, for free or whatever. Um, so just, you know, not, not use the window or browser elements, uh, or anything like that. And then the other thing is that, yeah, there will be a server side component. We are trying to work on that now of basically patching it up so that it'll be as simple as like an NPM install on the server and hook into kind of the various frameworks that you might want to use on the server side. Well, you got my attention now <laughs> because like I said, I mean, you reduce the cost and you're giving me that benefit of managing the load, the incremental load for me. Uh, I'm starting to feel it. And I have no problem with the constraint of not 
uh, using window or document or any of those things directly because I've already learned. Yeah, that's a world of pain, right? Yeah, yeah, we've already learned, actually. I mean, Angular 1 uh, encouraged us to um, use their abstraction for that anyway in order to insulate ourselves from that from a testing perspective and through dollar window and so forth. And and what you're saying is is that we should be uh, we'll have the same motivation or additional motivation to use those uh, wrappers in this world. Yep, definitely. And now I want to go back to a question I asked earlier. So I totally understand now that if you're using this uh, universal setup so that it does the server-side rendering, you can take advantage of a lot of server-side caching so that instead of having to have it render the section of the page every time, you can effectively pull in something that uh, already has the right uh, right things in it. The question I have, though, is besides the caching, is it really still that much more performant to do it on the server? Are you saying if without any caching at all? Yeah. Yeah, so Angular itself does caching for its views. So, for example, if you bootstrap an Angular app on the server, the initial boot time is going to take 100 milliseconds because it has to load up your application and then puts all of its uh, templates in, in the cache. Now, there's actually another step that you could do that you don't technically need to do on the server, and that is like pre-compiling your Angular application. And that's basically allowing you to um, pre-compile all of your templates into just JavaScript. Now, again, you don't have to do this on the server. It's a benefit for the client, but that's another way to just make the initial bootstrap for the server faster, even though it doesn't really matter there. But By the uh, way, we should call that out as one of the things that's recommended for turning your uh, Angular 1 app into a production-ready app is push all those, you know, you definitely want to bundle up all of your little HTML templates into one JavaScript file like that yeah. and use that. Just, hey, people out there, learn that trick. Yeah, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, so essentially, you definitely want to to cache templates. And caching as in, like, being able to say, this table is so large, I need to, rather than recomputing it every single time, again, you would kind of pre-compile everything, and you could allow Angular to do that, or your build system to do, to do that. To convert it, the build system would pre-compile Angular and convert it into a function, and that would stay there. And then you would just invoke this function essentially with, with data. And then that's how you get your new application state. Yeah, but when I make a request, I mean, I want that, you know, you, you made it look like in your talk and the way we've been talking that, you know, I'm going to get a response back very quickly with all of the right data in the right places. So I get a request to my server and it's, you know, load this page. And so... Yeah. Typically, on the client, what it's going to do is it's going to go, okay, so I load in all of the static assets, you know, the JavaScript files, CSS files, all that stuff. And then after it runs all that, then it has to run the JavaScript and bootstrap all the data in, probably has to make some calls to the server to get the data back. And I'm wondering, so that takes time. You know, that's your three to seven or ten seconds or whatever you said on the client. And you're talking like on the server, you can do that in like under a second. Or, yeah, so are you, is a question about... So, so how um, do you do that? Is it just caching, or is it the fact that you don't have to do end runs to get data? Or you know, is there more to it? Is there some more performant way of rendering that you're using that doesn't involve the DOM? There's kind of two questions here. One is rendering the application, um, and then the other one's rendering the application with data. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So I'll start with rendering the application, in general, so you, you bootstrap your application, and let's just talk about this in, in terms of the client. So you bootstrap your application, and your components has all these templates, 
but then it makes a request to the server, it grabs all these templates, and then it kind of injects all the data inside of it, and everything kind of works. Now, in Rails, now let's step back a little bit, I guess. In Rails, um, in order to increase performance, you would do some like document fragment uh, caching. Mm-hmm. So you would, it's, pra- it's practically the same thing, where you would say, this portion of the document, I'm going to cache that, and then you know kind of piece everything together, right? So we don't have to do that anymore on the on the server because right. that's handled already by what uh, JavaScript is doing on the client because of the, the universal approach. Now that uh, we don't have to technically do that on the server, um, all that's handled there. So now the next question is, how do you manage data, right? right. Now this is a, the biggest problem in React right now, and that is that their server rendering solution at the moment is uh, really slow because it's parsing HTML and then it's also grabbing data. And then for them, it's very questionable how to resolve the asynchronous flow of I'm going to get data and then put it in the template. And it's kind of waiting for the data to be done before it continues rendering. So with Angular 2, we have this notion of uh, asynchronous templates. And this is um, something that not a lot of frameworks have. And this is something that something like Falcor uh, suggested that was great about uh, Angular is that there's this one notion in the MVC architecture that's not asynchronous, and that's the, the combination of the, the model and, the, and the, the view, the template. That's the only part in most frameworks where it's synchronous. Everywhere else in the, the triad, it's actually asynchronous. So now we go on the server, and we have all this templating, and it's doing all its caching and fragmenting. So what you could do, now let's just put it in a simple term. Let's just say I have a model, and it has a cache. And I, let's just say that I'm going to put something in that cache. Now, when the Angular when the Angular app bootstraps, it's going to interact with its models and it's going to grab stuff in the cache first. Now, this is similar to how the browsers work and how REST works, and it's actually a really good uh, design. So basically, that's how it would kind of work: is that you would set the cache to whatever data you need, and basically, whenever your application bootstraps, it will grab the cache first and then realize that it's there and then continue on. Now, if it's not there, it will then make a request, which is asynchronous. And then from there, you could you have a lot more options rather than uh, other frameworks where it's all synchronous. Can we play that out slowly? I think it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but let's play that a little bit slowly so people at home like me can follow along. And let's separate it into two very different kinds of data requests. One of them is uh, requests for data that a lot of people are going to want. Let's say a, a table of products that I want to pick from. Yeah. And then later on, we'll deal with this scenario which it's in which the data that's wanted on that first page is data only that a particular user wants, like, say, my email or my posts. But let's take the easy one first, the products. So imagine that what we're talking about is this thing application is supposed to open up, and it's supposed to show a list of products. How would that work? Yeah. So, again, you would have this approach of an isomorphic model. And that is essentially a way of interfacing with this model, and it has a cache, right? So you would essentially, the application would bootstrap, and it would run its regular code, as you would, and inside of your controller or whatever, you would do a a find for this particular list. And what it would do is it would actually look for the cache first. Now on the server... No, this is the cache of products, right? Yeah, so, right, and where is that? Where is that cache? Is that cache of products on the server? Is this happening on the server, or, or I don't, so this, or I don't have to know? Yeah, sorry. This is the the isomorphic model. This is the model that's inside the framework that runs on both ends. Right. So but when request this request can, is made, it, yeah. it comes in, 
and when it's rendering the page, it goes and it it checks the cache to see if it has that list of products in the cache. I'm wondering who it is. I'm with you, Chuck. I mean, I you know these you know you got to play like we're dumb here, guys, because because the client makes a request to the server and says, "Give me the page of products." What's happening and who's doing it? Let, let me uh, frame things just like slightly differently that I think might make more sense because the original question was just talking about how things are kind of fast on the server. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patrick mentioned the one thing about the asynchronous components, which actually that helps a great deal because it doesn't wait for each component to load data. It can kind of all do it at the same time. That's just like one thing of itself. But then the second thing, which is we're talking a little bit about one aspect of it, is there's various levels of caching. So like the, um, yeah, Chuck mentioned like, okay, what if there's no caching? I think you were specifically saying no page caching, which is kind of that highest level of caching. Yeah. But there's always like when you go down the stack, there's mm-hmm. like caching at like many different levels down the stack. And data caching is, is the one thing that Patrick was just talking about, right. which is a possibility of using where you're both server side and client side are using uh, some sort of shared uh, model. But one of the great things about, uh, you know, Angular 2 is how even, you know, at a lower level, like even before you get to the data, uh, and we did talk a little bit about the templates, but the way I, I like to think about it is if you just think about a component, like you define an, a component in Angular 2, that component, when it's running, you, let's say, forget about the server for a second, when it's running in your client, that component is like a object, like it's a it's an object in memory, right, that, that mm-hmm. represents that that component. And the instantiation of that component can occur many different times on the page. So they share the same, uh, it's called the proto view, which is the sort of the object of memory that allows you to like take data and slap it into that component to show the instantiated view for that thing. And on the server side, the one additional benefit you get is that you not only get to share those proto views, like if you have like a list on the client side, you know, you would share your proto views for each item. It would be the same exact thing in memory, just like applied uh, in different instances, but which is one of these Angular 2 optimizations. But on the server, you get an additional benefit because you can reuse those proto views among Across different users. users. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. So I, I think I'm kind of seeing where this is going. So you kind of have this shared cache at different levels, like you said that you can take advantage of across multiple requests from multiple users or clients or whatever you want to call them. And so you get that benefit. And the other thing is, is that you don't have the network latency to make any requests to get data. If there is no, if there's a cache miss, essentially, you can just work that out on the server. I can definitely see where you'd get some performance gains from this. The The other question I have related to this, though, is then does this increase my the, the amount of work I have to do on the server you know, such that, you know, I may have to scale up a little bit in order to implement this particular practice. Here, let me let me just touch on something that, that makes Angular a lot better at Universal than, uh, say, that any other frameworks. So do you know Angular 1? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know the, the GI system, mm-hmm. uh, just briefly. All right. Do you know $HTTP and the, the backend service? $HTTP, yes. The backend and- service, I'm not sure... Okay. It's usually so, invisible to the usual developer, but yeah, it's, it's you, you just you run into it when you do testing against it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have this. Okay, I'll just uh, briefly uh, explain it. So you have this HTTP class, 
and you inject another class, that's the backend, and you interact with that whenever right. you want to make a request to the backend. Now we could think of the model as, as that, but you inject the cache. Now the cache, we'll just call it, you know, cache generally, but on the client, we could call it local storage. So we change the bindings there to local storage, right? So now whenever you make a HTTP call, it's interacting with the cache. It's going to hit local storage. It's either hit or miss that makes a call. Right. Now on the, on the server, we could do the exact same thing, but we change the bindings there and the cache on the server could be represented as Redis. Now mm-hmm. it's the same type of cache, just different environments. Right. Now it's going to do the exact same thing. It's going to make a HTTP call, hit the cache, see if it's there. If it's not, then make a request. Now, I guess to answer more of your question, what's going to happen if there's a miss? So there's a few different ways to go about this, but we'll just go with, I'll just explain too. So let's just say that there's an asynchronous request, but you need to send something to the client really, really fast. Now, because we have control over the environment, say that we know that this is a user, not a, a web crawler. In that regard, then we are able to ensure that we don't need to like wait until everything's done. So we could push the template onto the, the client initially, and we could then say right after the bootstrap line, the script for inside the HTML after the script, we could then inject the data later. I guess a better way to think about it, just thinking about it with HTTP2, essentially you send down the initial uh, client version and then you just push down the value to the user after that request is done. And then that will again be stored in the local storage cache. So next time there's a request, it's going to hit that first. Does that kind of make things a little bit more clear on that? Uh, you had me up to the point where you were you talked about Redis and hitting Redis as the cache instead of local storage, which made sense to me. And then everything after that, I completely didn't understand. Let me see if I've got it right. I can imagine how this works. Okay, so the client realizes, you know, that it doesn't have anything. Let's if I just did it from client side, I realize I don't have anything in cache, right? Mm-hmm. But I want to display something, so I immediately return an empty container that says no products in it, has no products in it. But I've got that set up so that now asynchronously I'm making the call, and when the products arrive, I I know what the container is. So when that promise resolves, the saying that the data have arrived, I'll fill that container, and suddenly the screen will fill. That's kind of the idea, isn't it? Yeah. Right. What What about well, on the they, server? Well, it's 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 universal, right? So it's right. the same thing. The same thing will happen. Yeah, but it's not making an HTTP request. So well, does it, it, it does it just go down to my PostgreSQL server or? Yeah, so I think the problem here is not thinking about the network layer. Right. If you just ignore the network layer and just assume stuff kind of works like that, then you kind of could see all the components moving around. But replace HTTP call with like a function call to the database. Right. Right. And then that's like a long running task. Mm-hmm. The baseline for data in a universal app with Angular 2 is that right out of the box that you don't do any other optimizations is that you will actually fetch the data twice that like on the server side it you know because you're right. running the exact same thing uh you know on the on the server and the client you know so it'll go get the data and then the client will do it again but it's very easy to like this that's like the no cost uh kind of just mm-hmm. right out of the box get it going but it's very easy to take some additional steps then and start adding like small optimizations so that you start sharing data and you start like okay we already made this call once let's kind of pass state down and so we are going to be adding stuff 
into the solution that allows for those advanced users who want to configure things to uh, for those different use cases to do stuff like that as well. Yeah. So the other question I was trying to ask was, if I'm doing server-side rendering, does that increase the load on my server? Yeah, and it, and it definitely does. I mean, when, when you, you could serve up a client-side app just from like a CDN, right? right. So like clearly, if you are going to be creating you know, an actual app on the server side, it's going to have load. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that great. I mean, obviously, Chuck, you know very well from many different rail sites that you created that if you, you can use, depending on the app, I guess, most yeah. of the ones that I've, I've looked at, you can use like edge caching and that type of thing mm-hmm. on the server side so that the load isn't too bad. But it's definitely going to be more than just a straight client side app. Yeah, you can definitely use intelligent use of caching and load balancing and caching in the load balancer and a million other different things. Right, right, right. Optimize exactly. your database so that it's caching and doing other intelligent things so that, yeah, you don't have to do nearly as much work to give out the same data multiple times. But also remember that Twitter is a good example of this. They were initially all server rendered, you know, Ruby and Rails. Mm-hmm. Then they switched to the client, all uh, client rendered. Then they ran into a lot of problems. But then they switched to this hybrid approach. And this is the approach that we're kind of proposing. And that is saying that the initial load, you get everything, right? And you get it in a very snappy experience. Now, if you tack on something like Service Worker, then you interact with Service Worker rather than hitting the server every single time. And the Service Worker will basically allow you to maintain your your assets on the client. And that's, that's kind of... Uh, the world that we want to get to. Can can I stop you? What is service worker? Yeah, sorry. So service worker is a way to manage your your resources on the client. So it's basically allowing like native web application features for web applications. Like, uh, yeah, if you could. Well, I I was going to say, I I should explain at this point just for like simplicity's sake that Patrick loves to like, he's the thinker in our group. Like he, he tries out like a million different things and like service worker is definitely going to help with some uh, stuff here, but that isn't a vital part of the kind of out of the box solution. Uh, so like there's all sorts of different variations and like cool, like add-ons to like, in order to create like a full, full stack uh, app with Angular 2 and like, you know, really awesome optimizations for like advanced users and that type of thing. But most people who use this, won't even have to care about that at all. Um, so it just to, to kind of distinguish between you, like if you're using this, you don't have to like think about like, you know, the data caching and like the service worker and like everything else. Like you, you just have to like do a simple install and like have the baseline working. But if you do uh, really care about kind of those like really fine tuned stuff, like a lot, there's going to be a lot of additional stuff that will be available. Oh, gotcha. And and I like the idea that, yeah, for the most part, it's install this, set it up, make sure that the basic case works. You know, it can talk to the database and talk to the cache and whatever, and then it's ready to go. Definitely. So the other question I have, you, you've talked about in your talk, and we'll put a link to the talk in the show notes, but you talked about how, so on the back end, you've got it hooked up so that you can run it on like Express and Happy and a couple of others. Are there just bindings that hook into those frameworks to make this work? Or is there more to it than that? Patrick, I'll let, you, I'll let you talk about the details, but just at a, at a high level, I wanted to explain that our primary use case 
is JavaScript backends that like, you know, any sort of framework or whatever. And we're building kind of adapters, you know, for each of the, the popular frameworks, Express and Happy or whatever. But, uh, you know, I'll let Patrick into the details, but we eventually want to, and this will be down the road, but eventually allow non-JavaScript backends to also, you know, participate. Yeah. So, so what we're doing is we're just making a baseline experience for everyone in, in every framework. And that's allowing you to buy into this like universal world in any stage you want and basically at any level. And that's the level of abstraction that you want. So that's saying that if I include this adapter, I could either make my application universal with one line or I could have more control over uh, the lifecycle of the application by doing it another way. But it, that involves more lines of code and understanding how everything works. So the initiative of making sure that we have this working in other frameworks is just ensuring that we have a baseline experience for everyone. So that way they could say, because that's, that's the thing that we found out about server-side rendering is that everyone has a different backend. Like mm-hmm. not everyone has JavaScript and everything. And that's why we're also trying to do another initiative of rendering Angular 2 in, in other languages. Right. But essentially then what it is is it's, you install maybe an NPM package that's Angular Universal Express, and then you include it somewhere in your application, you include the module, and then what it does from there is it it just sets up the binding so that when uh, the request is made, it does all the right things, and it uses the mechanisms that Express already exposes to get the data and, you know, interface with the cache and all of the other things that we've already been talking about. And then if you want more control, then there's some API that you can grab onto within that module to actually give it a little bit more nuanced behavior. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, I think I think we're still working on the specific API, but um, what we've kind of discussed at a high level is something along the lines that, like, if you just do, like, a simple you know, include with like no configuration options, then it would basically take over, you know, routing as well. They would just route all requests. You know, it would assume that you're just doing everything to Angular, to uh, like the server-side version of Angular to handle it. But, you know, obviously you could get more fine-tuned from there. If you want to only route certain requests, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to really like just pick and choose like certain routes that get rendered with Angular on the server, you know, whatever, we'll have the ability to configure it kind of uh, at a more granular level as well. So I'm confused about so many things, but let me let me ask you this one. I understand, or at least I think I understand, that what you're talking about is helping build a, a, a caching abstraction uh, for various server technologies such that the request comes in and you can you know, rather easily figure out whether you got the data or whether you should go off someplace else. Okay, I got, I got that idea. But we keep talking about rendering Angular, which suggests to me, and I'll go back to my product example, that if I was asking for a page with product on it, if you were rendering that on the server, then I would expect something to flow over the wire that would have product data in the table. Let's suppose it was a table, a list or a table of products. And, you know, when it arrived, it would somehow have something that would be the data itself in the page. Or what's the rendering doing for me? How is it rendering on the server and I'm not re-rendering in some fashion on the client? Help, help me out. Wait. It will, by default, both the client and the server will pull the data and will render the page. 
But the difference between like a re-render where you just like kind of blow everything away, that's where Preboot comes in, where we built a library called Preboot that bridges the gap that you have a server-side view. And right from the moment that the server-side view is loaded in your browser, for those five seconds or six seconds while the client side is downloading, the Preboot library is just a small piece of inline JavaScript, which records all events on the page. It basically captures everything that's occurring on the page for those five or six seconds until Angular is live. And then once Angular is live, it replays all those events to Angular uh, so that Angular can actually take actions on that. And the reason why it's important with this setup is because it allows Angular, if by default you do the, the default behavior of just kind of re-rendering everything, it won't blow away what's there because uh, Preboot will transfer over all of the state of what the server-side view put on the page and make sure that it's there in the client side. So if you, for example, you know, uh, put your mouse into a text box and start typing something, click a button, whatever, it will seamlessly kind of be handled by Angular once it's ready. So basically you get a fully formed page and then as Angular loads up, then it basically repopulates all that stuff. And if nothing's done, then it's probably going to repopulate it with the same data and it'll be mostly transparent to the user. But if something, you know, they click on something or interact with the page in some way, then it records those events. And then once everything's been played in, then it'll replay those events. Right. So I have another question, and that is, since I mostly don't write my backends in JavaScript, can I pre-render the page by essentially doing the rendering I would normally do in Rails and then have the front end do what it would normally do to, like I just said, it would essentially re-render or plug in all that data into the same places and it'd be mostly transparent and then use pre-render uh you know your pre-render js i think that's what it was called on my rails apps pre-boot pre-boot that's what it was can can i get away with that yeah so let me briefly touch like uh there's one technique of getting JavaScript to run in different languages, and that is just like like a JavaScript environment that basically just runs Node, but in mm-hmm. but in that language in another thread, and then it pipes it over, and then that's like the baseline uh, experience. But the ideal solution is what Angular is doing already with Dart, and that is compiling the the framework to another language. Now, I'm not saying you should do this, but I'm saying like Angular allows for this. Now, there's another approach, and that is writing the renderers in a different language. Now we already see this with like native script and Angular. The idea is that like a portion of the framework is actually written in another language in order to optimize there. So there's a few techniques that you could use. Again, this would involve a lot more community effort, but essentially that would be the ideal solution. So I can write a pre-renderer in Ruby is what you're telling me. Yeah, you could write your renderer in Ruby and you're able to, as long as it outputs everything correctly, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could actually take advantage of that. But uh, that is something that is for further down. Any any of those kind of different options for like non-JavaScript backends, we've like really uh, purposely kind of held off on a lot of them, even though yeah. there are many people who are interested because we want to perfect sort of the JavaScript backend and have that kind of fully working. But it, like Patrick is saying, it is true that there are kind of a number of different possibilities, you know, for the future of hooking into this solution. Yeah, and it's it's just worth noting that like, Angular allows anyone to do this. We're not, you know, going to be writing that at all, just because it's a lot of effort. And again, that's why I'm saying like there really needs to be a community effort to do that. And the way that we see of bootstrapping that effort is providing 
the minimum amount of, of way of allowing people to hook into this, and that is just like our technique of rendering uh, Angular 2 on a different backend. And you could almost think of it as um, the lowest level as a command line utility where you just include your component and then it just outputs the string. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess what I was asking, um, and, and that, that'll make sense, and I, I, I like the idea of, yeah, essentially writing my views so that they're Angular-enabled and then have my you know, my Rails app essentially render them and then be able to, to do that. But, you know, can I just render a fully formed page without the Angular-enabled stuff to put the data in and then just have it Angular-enabled on the client so that it gets the rest of the optimization, so to speak, on the front end and use preboot JS there? You can, yeah. you can definitely, from today, you will be able to use Preboot to help out with uh, certain aspects of that. Uh, I mean, I think that doing some, what you're um, suggesting... Yeah, I have work, to render I, it twice, think, I, two different ways, but yeah. Yeah, it just requires extra effort. Yeah. So it's, it, you can definitely do it. Yeah, sorry, I was, I was suggesting, like, optimizations, but yeah, you could yeah. form your, your template in a certain way. And so long as the structure is the same, like, Angular wouldn't care and actually, yeah. you know, hook into everything correctly. Yeah, that makes sense. Our buddy Joe, who couldn't be here, had a question for you guys, and I'll just read it verbatim. He asks, does Angular 2 have a concept of a virtual DOM? And if not, how do you perform isomorphic rendering in Angular 2 without there being a virtual DOM? Now, now I'm going to let Patrick answer this, but let's just try to hold him back because he might start talking for the next, like, hour. (laughs) (laughs) We want the five-minute version, Patrick. All right, so Angular and and React do things quite differently. And with React, what you're doing is you're interacting with this virtual DOM, and you do a whole bunch of crazy stuff, and you change everything around. And then after all that's done, you render it. And that's that's the synchronous templating thing that I was mentioning. Um, you basically do all your changes, get all your model data, and then when all that's done, you you render, right? Okay, that's probably a deeper answer, but yeah, with Angular 2, you have we have like I don't want to say virtual DOM, but we have like a JSON DOM, where it's just the DOM represented as JSON. You could think of it as just the virtual DOM without any of the the diffing, and that's because Angular's renderer has a different method of doing that. So on the server, we're just interacting with JSON DOM, and that's you can just think of it as just just JSON, and we're just making changes to that. It's similar, but the rendering approach is different. Is that like a a representation in JSON of a visual tree or something like that? Yeah. Okay, so it's not it's not trying to be HTML, but it's trying to be a representation of something of that can then subsequently be translated into HTML. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically there is this whole virtual DOM hype around React, and then we realized that it was mostly just hype and that there are a lot of good things there, but there's some constraints uh, with it. And that is the, the synchronous versus asynchronous approach. With Angular 2 and its rendering method, it actually does things differently, and you have this uh, asynchronous approach to, to your templates. That means that you're not waiting. So this is, this is the reason why like rendering on the server is faster with Angular 2. For ver- there's various other reasons, caching, et cetera, but this is one of the core reasons why Angular 2 is faster than any other thing that has a virtual DOM, and that's like the way it's it's rendering and reconciling the JSON DOM. 
Right. And so on the server, it just interacts with the JSON DOM and it doesn't worry about whether or not there's an actual DOM backing it because it has a way of rendering that to HTML that gets passed back up to the server. So it outputs a string instead of interacting with an existing DOM. Yeah, so at the at the end of everything, we basically say we just traverse through this JSON DOM, and then we just two-string it, and then we reconstruct the HTML from that. Right. And it's also worth not- I'm noting that I'm just calling it JSON DOM just because there's this, this whole like thing that comes with whenever you say virtual DOM, and people kind of miss misinterpret that for being something else. But um, that's the reason why I said that. It makes sense. And it, it doesn't work the same way as the virtual DOM, but it's a representation of the DOM and it's an abstraction layer above the DOM in the same way that the virtual DOM is. It just doesn't do the same thing in the same yeah, way. Yeah, I think of a virtual DOM as literally looking like the DOM for HTML. It's trying to emulate the DOM that you would see, you know, or see, whatever, you know, that you could interact with if you were talking to a browser. And you got to end up there when you finally display it, but you don't, that may not be the optimal form of representation of the visuals and of the, the whatever the, uh, things that are actually operative in their handlers, event handlers, all the other stuff that hides in the DOM. There might be a more optimal way of representing that when you're trying to manipulate it. And you're suggesting, I think, Patrick, that there is some other representation of what will ultimately become the DOM that uh, Angular has, that it's working with, and that you can work with, and that it has different characteristics, including some level of asynchrony. Is that a paraphrase? Yeah, so you can think of it as... Yeah, like a virtual DOM is, we'll just think of it in terms of like one element. So in a virtual DOM, you would interact with that element through whatever interface it gives, right? And with an the, input box, I'd say input.txt, the sign, blah, 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 right? Just yeah, as so, if I was talking to the DOM. Yeah. Well, with the virtual DOM, like, well, that's worth the, the JSON DOM. So the JSON DOM, you could manipulate it as much as you want, exactly like an actual DOM. So you could do like dot value equals this, and then we'll just like, reconcile that later. But yeah, they're they're very similar. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's worth getting into the weeds on how the it's... JSON DOM works. And we're already <laughs> over our time, so uh, Yeah, that's uh, so so I we'll hand wave words. over that and just say uh, that you know it, it offers certain advantages that make this all work very nicely. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like topics that are uh, there's a lot of concepts that are just new that are being brought forward. And that's kind of like um what we're trying to solve is trying to make it easy as possible for people to jump in and kind of understand these concepts. Like, for example, the the whole model thing, like if I could just include a different bindings, and we did this already with HTTP, like on the client, it's require HTTP injectables, and then that's how you get the, the client version. Mm-hmm. On the server, you do require like Angular Universal, and then you get out $HTTP, and then that's the server version. And all you do is you put that inside of the bindings, and then on the client, you do the exact same thing. So the difference there is how we bootstrap the application. Yep. Do you guys have a timetable for uh, seeing all this stuff? It's more just like um, making sure that developer experience is, is good and then actually distributing it on NPM. Well, but, but I mean, we don't have a specific time. Just like the Angular team, like it, you know, Tobias from the Angular team always harps at us for never giving dates just because, you know, it, it incorrectly sets expectations. But the one thing I would say is that you can follow our progress on Angular slash Universal, number one. And number two, Patrick and I are sort of um, motivated, highly motivated 
to get stuff done as quickly as possible because we have to talk about it at Angular Connect in a couple months. And uh, it won't be nearly as good if we don't have it kind of <laughs> in a, a much better state uh, where it's almost ready to be used by everyone. So uh, sort of conference-driven development, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, will it be ready when Angular 2 comes out of beta? Comes out of beta, of course. During beta, yeah, of course. It's not even beta yet, though. Still alpha. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> is is this something that we can play with now if we're playing with the Angular 2 alpha? Yeah, so technically you can play with it inside the repo. The only restriction is that it's distribution. Now, I mean, um, there's a time frame difference, like when this episode is released and what we're talking about right now. But right now, as we're talking on, on here, the only way to actually use this is um, actually inside of the repo, then making your example app inside of there. But the short answer is yes. You just have to clone the repo and kind of build it from there. Okay. Well, I'm going to cut us off because uh, we are way over what we usually talk. So Yeah, I think the, the model explanations, that one is a little bit much. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there are things that are important to us when we're building our Angular app, so... Yeah, it's totally yeah. worth talking about. But let's let's go ahead and do some picks. Lucas, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I would love to start us off with picks. So I have recently been reading a book called 14 by Ernest Klein, and it is quite, quite engaging. And if you kind of like weird science fiction, interesting mystery type stuff, then uh, so it's kind of fringish in a way, uh, but a very cool book. I highly recommend it. All right, Ward. Uh, okay. Well, uh, next week I am going to hike uh, Mount Whitney, the Mountaineers' route, and which is the tallest mountain in the lower 48 states. And I'm kind of into this lightweight backpacking thing, so I had to turn in my old backpack and save eight ounces. Spend 300 plus bucks to save eight ounces to buy a new pack, and it feels like I've got a paper bag on my back. It's so light, and it's by Z Packs, but it's kind of it's kind of fun this whole ultralight backpacking thing, and and uh, so I'll tell you more about it someday. But anyway, here comes Whitney, and here comes my Z Pack 22 ounce pack. Isn't a Z-Pack also like a antibiotics or something? Wow, that's an interesting thought. I hope I don't catch anything up there. <laughs> All right, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. I just want to remind everybody about Angular Remote Conf again. Uh, that's going to be September 24th through 26th. And uh, the call for, for proposals is open through the 31st. The early bird tickets are available through the 25th. And I'm also going to throw out a discount code for listeners of the show. You can get 25% off. If you use the code adventures, so uh, you go over to Angular Remote Conf and use the coupon code. I also have another pick. I'm, I'm a member of a mastermind group that I, I really, really enjoy and has made a big difference for me. It's called Iron Sharpens Iron. It's done by Aaron Walker. He also has a community called View from the Top. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But I just want to point out a couple of things. So the guys in the group have just been terrific and have really supported me in a lot of the things that I have going on. It's a men's group, so I just want to put that out there as well. So, And that's just because Aaron is much more comfortable coaching men. And so anyway, uh, I've really, really gotten a lot out of the group and a lot out of the discussions that I've had with these guys. So I'm going to pick Iron Sharpens Iron, but I'm also just going to encourage people 
you know, whether you're in your own business or not, to go find a group of people that you can have deep and meaningful conversations about life, about business, about work, about a family, about whatever it is that your concerns are, and, you know, make the most of that because having a group of supportive people around you makes a huge, huge, huge difference. So that's mostly my pick is mastermind groups. Jeff, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, two quick picks. First is two years ago, Lucas was actually working with me at Get Human to create the initial version, uh, prototype uh, and version of um, an Angular-based version of gethuman.com. And it took us an additional like year and a half after he left, but uh, we finally launched. Uh, so my first pick is uh, gethuman.com. If you are trying to contact any customer service uh, at any company, um, you can use it and not have to wait on hold. You just kind of uh, get into your phone number and we can call them for you and, and call you back once we have a live person. So it's very useful. The other thing is our Angular Universal repo. I wanted to solicit if anybody is interested in helping us out. We have a number of different uh, issues um, listed in the repo that we need help on. It's going to change over the course of you know the next couple of weeks as we kind of continue to work on stuff. So Definitely, if you, when you hear this, just go to GitHub slash Angular slash Universal and go, click on the issues and kind of look through. And if you're interested, we would love to have additional help. All right, Patrick, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so my first pick is open source. Open source is great. Again, you should also help us in Angular Universal. Pretty much all of your constraints, use cases, just bombard us with issues about that and we'll find a way to integrate it or provide a way um, because I think it's a good idea for us to make sure that it works for you. And the other two are, are conferences, so Angular Summit and Angular Connect. Angular Connect is going to be really, really interesting, so I recommend everyone to uh, tune in or get a ticket if, if possible. And, yeah, those are my picks. All right. If people want to know more about Angular Universal or about what you guys are up to or any podcasts you happen to be on regularly, uh, where do they go? So, yeah, for... Angular Universal, it's just GitHub slash Angular slash Universal. Both Patrick and I, one thing we didn't mention that you're right, Chuck, both Patrick and I are on Angular Air. So if you go to angular-air.com and I have my website as well, jeffwelpley.com, if you want to check out latest blogs. All right. Terrific. Well, thank you all for uh, coming and we will have another episode out next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 